Good morning. Our reading this morning is from Nahum chapter 2. The scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. This is the word of the Lord. We're about two weeks away from finishing our study in the book of Nam. Uh, and I'll give you a minute. We're going to be there. We're going to be looking at chapter 2, all of it this morning. So uh, spend a minute or two and try to find Nam in the Old Testament there. It's uh, one of the books that's called a minor prophet. And it's uh, called a minor prophet not because of its contents, but because it's short. Uh, it's only three chapters long. It was written in the uh, about the 7th century B.C., when Israel was divided between two nations, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, <clears throat> neither of the kingdoms were particularly obedient to the Lord. And Assyria, the nation of Assyria at the time, was commander of the universe. Uh, Nineveh, I'm sorry, Assyria was the country that ruled everything in the world at the time. Of course, the, the world consisted of that part, but uh, they conquered Egypt. They conquered both the northern and the southern kingdoms of Israel. They had conquered Syria. They had conquered Damascus. They had conquered all the northern kingdoms. Rome wasn't even a, a blink on the radar screen yet. The capital city uh, of the nation of Assyria was a place called Nineveh. And Nineveh was a pretty extraordinary city, really. Uh, even by modern standards, it would have been considered a great city. At the time Nahum was written, it was uh, population was about 174,000 people. So uh, you know that's that's a big town anywhere you go. The circumference of Nineveh was about 60 miles. And most of the city was surrounded by a very tall wall that was used for fortification. And in that wall were a number of different gates that were used for people to travel in and out of and for commerce to come and go. And around the outskirts of that city wall would have been one of the largest armies ever assembled in the ancient world. They had chariots. Their soldiers were outfitted with armor. They had spears, swords, and shields, and it would have been an extraordinary place. The book of Nahum uh, is written by an individual whose name means comfort, and his message was primarily given to the southern kingdom of, of Israel about Nineveh the capital city of Assyria. 
And, and the message was that God is a God of judgment and that God is a God of right and he is a jealous God. And because of the sin of the people of Assyria, he is going to judge their capital city. And where goes the capital city goes the nation. And so consequently, it's a, it's a book about judgment against the people of Assyria. Now, I've given you a little bit of a description of, of Nineveh, this capital city, and I was born near a city, but I am not a city boy in any way, shape, or form. In fact, I live up in Ranch of the Rockies, and I don't like to go to Buena Vista. I mean, to be really honest with you, and very few people consider Buena Vista a city, but that's more than I really want to deal with. But what, what is represented in a great city? We used to live outside of Chicago, and some consider it a great city. And, and I thought this week, what are the things that are characteristic of a great city if you're a city person and you want to live there. First and foremost, I think, would be security. I mean, it's nice to live in a city that makes you feel secure and gives you that sense of peace. Now, mind you, I don't get either of those two things from Buena Vista, let alone a city, but if you're a city dweller, those are two things that I think that you would want to find security and peace, and then you would want it to be a thriving, bustling city, meaning that it was uh, healthy in commerce and that you could make a living there and that most everybody that lived there could make a living as well. You, you want a city to be convenient, meaning you know it's got modes of transportation and that there's either a liquor store, 7-Eleven, or a grocery store on every corner so that you don't have to walk far if you're stuck walking, but, but you want a level of convenience in your city. You want water, obviously, and you want a regular food source, and you want both of those things to be readily accessible. And I would say you want a sense of law and order. I mean, um, we live in a world that's trying to do away with the police, but quite frankly, I like them. I, I like people who are enforcing law and order and, and give us part of that sense of peace and security. Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria, had all of these things. Steady water source, steady food source, an army to protect there was leadership of the highest order, but, but the leadership, while great for its people, was absolutely ruthless, meaning they were self-serving for themselves first, their people second, their nation third. Doesn't sound unfamiliar, I suppose. Uh, but, uh, but that was the type of city that Nineveh was. You could look out on the streets and you'd look outside the city walls and you would see examples of the military and the interior police force. And you had a king who was very strong, very powerful, very ruthless. But there's a level of security that goes with that. 
because you knew that he was going to take care of you. And so 174,000 people lived in a city like that. Now, the alternative was you lived outside the city walls in a tent in the bush. Now, that on the surface level sounds terrific to me, but at the time, there were lions and tigers and bears, and there were marauding tribes of individuals who went around as thieves from other countries who constantly put the people living in tents in the bush at threat. So there are some advantages to city life if, if uh, you know, you like the things that I described earlier, uh, like convenience and like safety and like protection and a visible law that could be seen in the army and in the military and in the police force and, and so on and so forth. And then God shows up with this man, Nahum, and says, your city and your nation is going to come under judgment. Now, there are two groups of people that are going to react to that message. The first are the people of God in the southern kingdom of Israel. And I think that the majority of them said, I really wish it would happen, God, because they need judgment worse than anybody else on the face of the planet. But I really think you're overstretching your power and your abilities if you try to go up against Assyria because they are just too great and too strong. The people of Assyria, especially living in the capital of Nineveh, are going to say, <laughs> really? I mean, look at us. We conquered Egypt. You guys were just a thumbprint along the way to our way of Egypt. We're not overly worried about what the God of Israel has to say. So I suspect that Nahum's job was not easy, not simple. He had a message that was by and large either discounted, met with wishful thinking, or really scorned by the vast majority of people. But chapter 2 is the message Nahum delivered from God to these two groups of people about the destruction of this city that I have just described for us. And, and the first picture of that comes in verse 1 of chapter 2. And it says this, The scatter has come against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. I, I, I cannot help but think that there's a bit of tongue-in-cheek in this whole chapter from start to finish. Because God starts out in his message to Nahum, your city is about to be destroyed. So what I want you to do is get ready for it by preparing all of your defenses. Get everybody on the city walls, get the chariots, get the horses hitched up, get everything ready, sharpen your swords, get the shields, get the spears, get everything prepared, collect all of your strength because the scatterer is coming. That's 
how the chapter begins. And God is speaking of Assyria through Nineveh. Now in verse 2, God gives us the reason why Nineveh is going to be destroyed. Now, lest we have the temptation of thinking that this is merely fiction, in 612 BC, the city of Nineveh did in fact fall to the Babylonians, and the entire city was destroyed, the entire nation of Assyria was wiped out, and all the power that we're going to hear about or have heard about was entirely annihilated nearly overnight. But verse 2 gives us the reason why. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. In chapter 1 of Nahum, God describes himself as a judgmental God and as a jealous God. And God is jealous for two things. He's jealous for the sanctity of his own name, and he is jealous for the people that he has called to himself. And he will protect both things. He will make sure that people think rightly about him, and he will always honor his promises to his people. And so what verse 2 tells us is that this nation, Assyria, led by its capital, Nineveh, have plundered my people. They've broken their branches. And I am not going to tolerate that. I am going to raise my people back up, and I am going to bring judgment on the people of Assyria. Even though the southern kingdom of Israel at this time, called Judah, is living disobediently to God. So we have what God predicts is going to happen to the capital city of Nineveh, and he gives us the reason, so to speak, as to why it is going to happen. Now what I'm going to do is read verses 3 through 12 for us and make a few comments as we go along. But what we have is this great picture of God telling Assyria in Nineveh, this is what I want you to do in preparation for the judgment I am going to bring against you. And you tell me if there's not some tongue-in-cheek and some interesting things that go along with this. First, he begins to describe the army of the people who, who protect the city of Nineveh. Verse 3. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brannished. You get, you get kind of the picture. It's kind of a, I mean, I'm not dumbing down the Bible. I'm dumbing down Cecil B. DeMille. But, you know, a big panoramic view of a massive field covered in chariots. And, and men with shining armor of red holding up shields and spears in their hands with cypress wood. Uh, a hardwood, by the way, in case you didn't know. And they're, they're clanking their shields and their swords are being held in the air. And, and God says, yes, get it all ready. Get it all ready. The strongest army in the world that has conquered nations 
Get it ready. This is what it looks like. Then we turn to verse 4. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. Now when I read that, I get two things. I get a picture of that field in motion moving into the city, and, it, and it's, it's spectacular because there's torches in the chariots and the torches are gleaming off of the armor and it's highly impressive. But there's also underlying in this verse a slight sense of chaos. You listen to it again. The chariots are racing madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. There's just that hint of lack of organization, and just that hint of almost panic as the largest army in the world gets ready to be assaulted. And this continues, verse 5. He, that is the city, remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. That same sense, you know. The officers are waking up uh, woke up from, the, from their barracks and they have their post to get to, but they're, they're stumbling trying to get their clothes on and trying to get their armor ready. But they make it to the post and they, they get to the top of the siege walls and, and they're looking out upon the, uh, the approaching enemy. Preparedness, but, but also just a little bit of clumsiness as well. But then things go from good to Maybe not so good. Verse 6, the river gates are opened, the palace melts away. Its mistress, that is the queen or, or the queen's daughter, is stripped and she is carried off. Her slave girls lamenting, mourning like doves and beating their breasts. You get the picture. The noble women of Nineveh carried off in the middle of the night stripped bare and their maids and their servants lamenting what's going on as Nineveh begins to crumble. Verse 8, Nineveh is like a pool whose water runs away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all the precious things. Desolate, desolation and ruin, hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all their loins and all faces grow pale. From the strongest army in the world to the greatest city in the world, with everything that anybody could ever want or ever ask for in one night, it's all stripped bare. What's funny is that Assyria, while they were in power, always pictured themselves as a lion. As a matter of fact, if you go to the museum in London and, and you see the panel reliefs that were carved in Assyria at the time that this book was written, 
you will see all the noblemen of Assyria first hunting lions from chariots with cypress spears, spearing lions, and then you will see the noblemen of Assyria and Nineveh pictured with a lion's face because that's what they thought they were. The indestructible lion, the apex of all predators with no known predators. And in one night, in the midst of confusion and chaos, this is the picture God paints. And it was very similar to that, actually, in 612 BC. It didn't quite happen overnight, but in the spectrum of history, it might well have, if you know what I'm saying. And then the picture continues in verse 11 and 12. Where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion and the lioness went, where his cubs were with none to disturb? The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lioness. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. The lion had done everything in preparation put all the other lions in a cave, killed enough and put the food in the caves to protect the lioness and all the cubs, you know. But in one night, the city is plundered. You get the picture? The country, the nation, the capital that sees itself as the invincible lion with all kinds of preparedness, with the strongest army in the world, with food and water at their disposal, with walls surrounding their city, a great leader, law and order, commerce, prosperity, they had it all, and it is mocked in this chapter. And it is mocked. And Nineveh, by the way, was destroyed, never been rebuilt. Assyria as a nation, I've never yet met an Assyrian. Because Assyria was no more. The country, the nation, the dominant power in the world was gone and has never, ever returned. Now, I want to make one point of application here, and it will seem kind of mundane. If I lived in Nineveh and I did not believe in God, I would have believed that I lived in the safest place on earth. I would have believed that everything I ever needed was going to be provided for me and my wife, and my kids, and their future progeny for the rest of my life. And I would have scoffed at any nation who ever said, we're going to come put a whooping on you. I would have guaranteed. And I would have walked down the streets of Nineveh and said, I've got it made. And I don't want to speak at us, but I want us to know for real that both Christians and non-Christians put confidence and security in things that are gone in a night. 
in a night. And they're not necessarily bad things. See, that's the kicker. That's the kicker. I like security. I don't mind having money. I don't mind living in a place that is safe, that has law, where water and food are accessible, and I'm comparatively safe. I like those things. But if my sense of well-being and if my sense of security come from those things, I am living a fantasy. Because all of those things can be taken away that quickly. And some of us, Christian and non-Christian, go to tremendous effort to protect those things that we think provide us security. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a prepper wannabe. I'm not really a prepper. I don't really want to be one all that badly, but I kind of want to want to be one, you know? So Dave says, do I get a year's worth of food or two years or five years? But what if the guy that knocks on my door is stronger than I am and better prepared to take it away from me than I am to keep it? If my security is in that year's worth of food, I've got a problem. And I honestly don't know how much time we ask, we spend asking ourselves the question, really, really and truly, what do I put security in? Nineveh had every reason to be secure. And the picture that is painted here for us is the right picture, and the first thing that goes through our brain is, is a foreign nation that sweeps in on Assyria and wipes out Nineveh in a night and conquers them. And that's the picture that's painted. The chariots are, are running around, the, the swords are clashing, the spears are being hurled, and, and everything is taken away from a people very quickly. And we know that Babylon came from the east and conquered Assyria and wiped them out in very short order. It's historical fact. You don't have to read the Bible to read about it. It's historical fact. And then the Persians came and wiped out the Babylonians. And all three of those nations had security like you cannot possibly believe. And they wiped themselves out order after order after order. And the same is true for Rome and Greece. They're no longer superpowers. And everything that they had once for an instant was taken away from them by somebody stronger. And they would ask the same question. I thought I was secure. Where did my security go? 
You see, here's the problem, and if you'll look with me at verse 13. And quite honestly, if we really reflect on this, these are the scariest words in the Bible. Because God used Babylon to conquer Assyria. But this is what God says in verse 13. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. And I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. I am against you. Not Babylon. Not another people. I'll use Babylon. But it is the Lord God Almighty who is against you. Now that's... <laughs> I mean, if you, if you just pondered that for five minutes... What would it mean if the God of the universe, the creator God, was against you? The city of Nineveh, the nation of Assyria, but all the individuals in both those places. How secure are you feeling now? We could be like the first two groups who say, I really wish that would happen, but I know it's not going to because you're not powerful enough, God. Or just scoff. I have nothing to worry about. You must be kidding. What does God have against me? But God declares it here. I am against you. And it's easy to think about Assyria and Nineveh and say, they were ruthless and they were terrible and they were awful people and they deserved to be wiped off the face of the planet and I'm glad God got them. But God says the same thing about us. You see, the problem, and I know I come here, but every week for the last three weeks, but this is what Nahum is doing. He wants people to think about their own individual security. What are they going to rest in? Because God says, I hate sin. And the Assyrians are sinners, and the northern kingdom of Israel are sinners, and the southern kingdom of Israel are sinners, and the people in Buena Vista, Colorado in 2023 are sinners. And God is against sin, and God is against sinners. And that's a problem. And, and if we look at it that way and we start to say, wow, what I put my security in really starts to pale when I think about the problem. Because if God is against me, all my prepping isn't going to mean anything. And so look with me at chapter 1 again, and I want to reread these verses because they are the key to the whole book. 
verse 7 of chapter 1. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. God will take care of the problem of sin and he knows those who take refuge in him, who find their secure place under the wings of almighty God who is against sin because he has taken care of the problem of sin through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died and rose again. And, and so I want us to think about that. I want us all to have a relationship with God through Christ. I want that first and foremost. But is that demonstrated well in what we find security in tomorrow? You see? Is God my refuge or is my refuge anything else? Anything else? That's the question. Because Nineveh is a picture of those who found refuge somewhere other than the one true living God. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your word and what it teaches us about ourselves. What it teaches us about you. What it teaches us about how we can find refuge and security in you. And all praise belongs to you because your steadfast love lasts forever. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.